saw. There is nothing better for me than that than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any parts of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the, Jez, the Jezreelite, Abigail, um, the Carmelite and Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, Have I now found favor in your eyes? Let, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Gersherites and the, and the Gizzites and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel. And returned and came to Akish. Then Akish would say, Where have you made raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jehemiahs, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would, David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, In case they should inform us, inform on us, saying, Thus David did. And thus was his behavior. All the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Akish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words spoken to us, Lord. And when we read scripture like this, Lord, we are hearing the voice of God into our circumstance. And Lord, um, I know that there are various trials, like First Peter chapter 1 would say, various kinds of trials that are present here in the room, represented in people that are hurting maybe. Uh, I would imagine, because of all the talk about hope yesterday after the rugby, that many are lacking hope, living in hopelessness and despair. Even for believers, Lord, there are those seasons where we face doubt. And today is a day where we desire very much to hear from you and our faith to increase and our doubt to decrease. Lord, we desire for you to speak very strongly into our hearts, Lord. Father, I pray that comfort would come and peace would come and, Lord, the, the direct application of the gospel this morning might lead to change. We sit before a, a table to which you have invited us a table that represents the gospel for us to see in symbol. You see the blood of Christ represented here and the body of Christ represented here and fellowship of the saints around this table. And so, Lord, as we build this service toward thinking and remembering you, I pray, Father, that um, you would be pleased. Just like the psalmist would say, that our meditations would bring you joy and bring you pleasure um, this morning. So Lord, um, open our eyes, like we, like we sang and prayed in the song. Open our eyes to see, so we might hear from you. Amen. 
When I looked at the calendar, I noticed that there was um, Halloween on, or Hallow's Eve celebrated or um, that day uh, on Friday, the 31st. I then looked to my Bible to see what God had prepared for us and I noticed the witch of Endor. Ooh. Um, but I think probably some of you have prepared this morning reading your scriptures um, in pre- preparation for worship. You probably thought, I wonder how Trent's gonna handle the topic of witchcraft um, on the weekend of Halloween. This text doesn't tell us anything pretty much about, uh, about witchcraft at all, but there is an occasion here from which to learn other truths that are more important. And so when we look at the text here, you will see that there are two stunts that are performed, one by David and one by Saul, and the stunts are attempted, that's what stunts are, something dangerous um, attempted to pull off. And these stunts are attempted by Saul and David to teach us about ourselves, and like I prayed, to teach us about our need for a savior. So very appropriate that we would be in these chapters this morning on a day where we will also celebrate a more important than Halloween, infinitely more important, the Lord's Supper. So let's prepare for that. Let's take these moments in preparation for the Lord's Supper, where time will be given for you to reflect on your need for a savior and reflect on your own heart, and let's allow God to do a work here among our church um, this morning. When doubts assail, speak truth to yourself. When doubts assail, speak truth to yourself. And I think of the hymn. I couldn't, I didn't have time actually to look up what hymn it is, but I remember a hymn line that speaks about the assailing of doubt. And this hymn is sung by Christians. And I was aware all of a sudden in that ancient word assail of the constant buffeting that we receive by doubt. Obviously, um, non-believers live in a, in, a, in a questionable time of, um, of, un, of unbelief and disobedience, and with that comes measures of doubt, but when we look at like the Psalm, 20, Psalm 73, it's possible for somebody to live in the world and live without doubt, live like they're just flourishing in the world, oblivious to what is reality in the Bible. We're gonna talk about that in a moment. But this first point, really, I wanna address to Christians, to our church, and say that if you've been a believer for a long time, a believer of long standing, don't be um, overcome by the fact that at seasons, you might experience um, doubt assailing, buffeting you. We've been on an intense journey with David, dodging bloodthirsty Saul, and on this track, one can't help but side with David and begin cheering for the, for cheering for for him as he's walking the journey through the wilderness. He's the righteous, meek, patient, one who shows restraint and faithfulness. I mean, we, we pick up our little pom-pom and we start cheering, David is surely the king. This is the king we've been looking for, the one we've been preparing for all the way through these chapters of this book until now. It's almost like there's been this constant build and then 27. And you read 27 and you see David kind of Turncoating, we see David making some decisions that don't seem in line with the, the meek, righteous, restraining, faithful king that we heard about last Sunday. Faith is fading for David in this moment. His faith is dwindling, and the faith is fading to what I call luck in a secular worldview. And we are allowed, as the reader of the Bible, and this is the privilege of the Scripture, for us to read the thoughts that David was experiencing in the moment 
where he moved from strong faith in chapter 26 to a dwindling faith in chapter 27. What is the guy thinking about? Is luck running out? Well, it seems like in the language of 27, that's exactly what is being defined for us. I am going to perish, David said. Rare word in the Hebrew. One day at the hand of Saul, I am going to perish. It's better for me to escape to the land of the enemy, David said. This is not the kind of language we're used to from the man. And he pulls a stunt. He arose and he went over, meaning in the Hebrew, he crossed the line. He crossed the line to the enemy. To live in Goliath's hometown. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in Sunday school, we heard about Goliath, right? But I never got this story, 27, where David later on, after you know, killing David, Goliath, would return to Goliath's hometown and dwell there, and he would have to lie to the Philistine king in order to stay in that land, to earn his trust, to be able to stay in the enemy's territory. Whatever happened to confidence in God's hand? Now, folks, I want you to think this morning. What happened to confidence in God's hand from chapter 23? But God will give David into the hands, um, well, God will not give David into the hands of the enemy. What happened to that confidence? What happened to the encouraging words of Jonathan? Don't fear, David, for the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. What happened to that, you know, that belief and trust in the wonderful assurances of Jonathan and the assurances of Abigail, for example. Faith expressed in prayer in chapter 26. May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. What happened to that faith? What happened to those you know, assuring words of Abigail, perhaps, where she assured him, you're gonna be king, David. God has said that you are gonna be king. What about that time where David frothing at the mouth, dribbling over himself, acting like a crazy guy to escape Achish, to get out of Gath? What happened to that scene? Now he's going back to the exact place where he had to fake some kind of madness in order to escape this guy, Achish. Now he's back in the same place again. Well, this is the point that I want to make from these two chapters, that doubt is real. Doubt is real. And it is real for the unbeliever, but it is definitely real in this context for the believer, even of long standing. And I've met people like this that come to see me and say, Pastor, what is the deal, man? I've been serving the Lord for decades. And then all of a sudden, I woke up one morning, I don't know if I'm saved. And I'm not saying one or two occasions. Many over the time of my ministry have come to see me and said, look, I've been faithfully serving the Lord, but now I'm suddenly having worries about whether I'm saved or not. What's going on? It's like I'm regressing from you know, conversion experiences of long ago. Doubt is real in the world of a believer. I know that some may say David was being clever. I know that those of you that have studied this passage might have an opinion about what's going on here. That David's being clever. He's fulfilling the task of Moses from Numbers 33. So I want to address that. Numbers 33, Moses was told, I want you to go into this land of ancient enemies, and I want you to wipe out those that dwell there. And he never fulfilled God's word, Moses. And some have said, well, maybe David is the one now going cleverly into this land to take out the enemy. On the one hand, clever, but on the other hand, there is a lack of confidence. On the one hand, there is a, um, he's not so treacherous as we thought, perhaps, 
But on the other hand, he's not so faithful and he's not so righteous as we learned last week. There's a motivation for being ruthless, and I read those, those texts about, you know, how he killed all the women and all the children. It's hardcore to read about these kinds of events in the Bible. What was his motivation for being so ruthless? Some have said, some scholars have said, well, God previously recorded the purpose of Moses, and now he had to be ruthless to the end to wipe out all those that lived in the land. But perhaps the motivation for ruthlessness was something else, to cover lies and to win trust with a king named Achish, king of the Philistines, David's enemy. Well, strength and cleverness from a gifted, cunning David in one hand. But folks, I must look at this text and see a weak and a vulnerable David in the other. And what drives me to believe in the second, the other hand, is this fact that in the time of the, the, the verses of chapter 27, there is no mention of God. Nothing. From beginning to end, there is not one mention of God's commentary, God's name, God's opinion, nothing in the whole account about God. And this has been a regular practice of the, of the commentator, the narrator of what's going on in the book of 1 Samuel. That clinches the deal for me a little bit. I believe that we are to see here a David's nature, a weak and vulnerable David's nature, so that we can identify with it and see that it's very similar to ours. We've got to agree. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, one of my, my, my desires for this morning is that we would consider how very like David we are. And I looked at Matthew 26, verse 41, and I was reminded of the kind of spirit that I have sometimes. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to say, Christians, we are prone to doubt God. We are. In our sinful nature, our Davidic nature, we are prone to dwindle in faith. Faith's arch enemy is doubt and fear and self-protection. No reference for God. God tends to fade out of our lives. And it happens in a slow fade. He tends to fade out of our lives. And this happens very easily, all too easy sometimes for the believer. And the Lord's Supper is a time for us to come and to, you know, check our heart, to examine our heart, and to gain encouragement from God's Word to persevere in faithfulness, persevere in righteousness from last Sunday, to keep righteous and holy and keep faithful in the journey and the, the perseverance of our faith. We have in the past, that great confidence. We've been fervent in prayer like David. We've been encouraged by the assurances of others to press on. We've learned from our mistakes not to succumb to temptation and sin. But God, perhaps for you, has faded now. And there's a change of perspective. I mean, could this be true of you, sitting here this morning? Tired? Circumstances overwhelming? God's hand distant? thinking about crossing over, perhaps. Some have crossed over and they look quite successful and like they're flourishing and they're thriving outside of the will of God, which is true often. Life for them may have even improved, moving away, distancing themselves from God's once call on their life. But I want to tell you, at great cost, at great cost, Faithfulness and righteousness may have dwindled, but at great cost, 
So what is the solution? The solution is verse 1. Look at your Bible closely. Verse 1 of chapter 27 has a little phrase that gripped my heart when I read this account. All that information that follows hinges back to verse 1, I believe, where David said in his heart. Oh, prior in the book, we have seen many occasions where David said something. But these little words, in his heart, are included here for us to realize something going on inside of David. The privilege of the reader, again, to look into the heart of David and hear what he's preaching to himself. And this is what he preached, I will perish unless I cross over to the other side. Not a truthful message, not a gospel message of hope and faith, but a lie of temptation. What we preach to ourselves is absolutely essential. Point number one, what we preach to ourselves is absolutely essential. When doubts assail, we need to speak truth to ourselves. I'll get to the truth in a moment around the table. Let's look at one more point quickly. When hope fades, speak truth to yourself. When hope fades, speak truth to yourself. So David crossed over to join the Philistines. This is what is going on in the text. Saul's plan in the, in the, in the process here is to, well, no, sorry, Saul, Saul's reaction to this whole process is that he um, starts to panic. I mean, this whole text is riddled with, with fear. Verse 5, afraid in his heart. I mean, you've got the Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel, Saul, the king of Israel. Now David, his arch enemy, joins the Philistines. I mean, this is bad news for Saul. And so we see Saul here, verse 5, trembling greatly. We see in verse 6 that there's, you know, added to this, which makes things way, way worse, by the way, is the fact that Saul tried to connect with God, but there's no answer from God. And just as an, as an aside here, Saul had not been listening to God. And so God's reaction was to distance himself from Saul. And when I read those verses, I, I could see the buildup and my fear started to build. Um, I, I started to feel with Saul, all the enemies joining up against him. He's kind of alone, kind of isolated. But when those words appeared in the Bible there that God was not answering, man, my heart was filled with terror at that moment. I can't imagine facing crisis in life without God. Amen? Here is that picture of hopelessness and desperation for Saul. And he tries to pull off a stunt. And the stunt is to go and find some kind of medium to now engage God or engage at least God's prophet, a necromancer or a witch or however that word has been translated through, through, the, through the years, a medium to engage between the two. He seeks the one that perhaps can chat with the dead, is what's going on in the text here. Specifically Samuel. I mean, I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I thought about how it must have been for that young lady or that, that necromancer to now suddenly be talking with the one who had forbade talking to necromancers. The very person that had spoken the word of God saying this was forbidden in the land and worthy of punishment now is the one that's being sought in this little stunt. This was a thing. While the chapter, the, the, the chapter mentions it, um, it doesn't tell us everything about the subject of the, of the necromancing and the medium and all that kind of thing. We can't address that issue very much. The sorceress, it seems, was involved in Samuel's return, but I, I think 
know, the question is asked, is, was she the one that brought, really, brought Samuel from the dead to now talk with, with Saul? We don't know. There's no comment offered in the text. There's no information given in the text. It seems to me more reasonable that God is the one behind what's going on here. I, I thought about, and this is, you know, other scholars have done the same, how in the New Testament there's that occasion where Elijah and Moses are also raised up from the dead in a way, transfigured for the Lord, before the Lord, in Matthew chapter 17. Seems more reasonable that that's probably, probably what's going on here. But behind it all, we've got to see the theme of the text. And the theme, theme of the text is Saul's rebellion and Saul's disobedience and Saul's now lack of hope, almost to the point of being absolutely in despair and hopelessness. And what's strange is that the stunt that he pulled leaves him in a place of worse, lower hopelessness than before. The culmination of disobedience I can apply from this is that when we disobey and we rebel and we turn from the Lord and we try stunts like this, they always leave us more hopeless than when we began. Separation from Christ is the result. Separation from God is the result of any disobedience. We've got to learn that from the passage. Now, I want to spell out hopelessness for us as we approach the table today. Because there are two sides to hopelessness. There are two sides. There is, as one scholar, John Woodhouse, um, explained to me, there is one side of blindness, and there is another side of short-sightedness. And I like those labels, so I'm going to borrow them. Blindness being a blindness to sovereign purpose, God's sovereign purpose, that leads us to a sense of having no future that is worth having. And I want to go so far as to say that there are probably folk in this room right now that feel that way. It is a feeling. It's a feeling of the soul where we are blind to God's sovereign purpose in a situation. Kind of lost track. And when we sang that song earlier, I was just overcome by the reality there. Open up my eyes that I may see that you know my ways, that you have a way for me. What an awesome song that describes this very point, that believers can live like that, and over a period of time, we become blind to God's sovereign purpose in a certain situation, and we wake up every morning saying, I just don't see God. I just don't see God in this. I can't see God. I can't find God in the circumstance, and there's no future really worth having. If I pursue this, the worst outcomes are going to come, become reality, and so this is the way I feel. No hope when, in fact, listen to me, there is hope. That's the one side, the blindness. You feel as if there's no hope, but in fact, there is hope because there is a God who is sovereign and has a sovereign purpose over your life. And if you're a believer, he's gonna work all things ultimately for good. There is hope in every situation, but somehow you've become blind to that. It's possible, one side, blindness. On the other side, let me describe it so we can compare the two alongside of each other, is short-sightedness. Where it's possible for a human being to live without any kind of reality about the things that are coming eternally. They're oblivious to the Bible, oblivious to God. Obviously, in their heart, there's rebellion and there's rejection of God. Um, if, 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 that, if we could open up their heart, you'd find just this radical opposition toward God and His things and the things of eternity. So I would define the short-sightedness this way, short-sightedness to the things of eternity that leads to an unconscious hopelessness. The one you feel very hopeless, the other one you don't. But in, the rea in, in real fact, you are actually hopeless. And Ephesians is the book that we've been studying in our life groups lately. And man, when we got to chapter 2, 
there was the most incredibly clear example of this in chapter 12, in chapter 2, verse 12 of Ephesians. You may want to turn there. I think it'll be on the screen for you. Remember that you were at that time, this is before you met the Lord, separated from Christ. Speaking about your life before Jesus, BC days. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And this is the description of lostness. Having no hope and without God in the world. Back to Psalm 73 I mentioned a bit earlier. You find this individual in the world. A person who is living life to the full, it seems, having every possible thrill, every possible experience. Psalm 73 speaks about their bodies looking good, sleek, fat, and well-being, wealthy, prosperous, successful. The whole list is laid out for you in Psalm 73 of this individual. But Ephesians 2.12 explains that deep in the recesses of the heart, unconsciously, there is no hope. So now, let me compare the two. In blindness, you find this individual who feels Hope feels hopeless when in fact there is hope. The other individual feels they have hope, but in reality they do not. Got the person now? Two different people we are dealing with here. I don't know who, which category you fall into this morning. What I want to offer today before we come to the table is a solution for both. The solution for the one that, that is blind is this, a need to abandon unrealistic negativity. There is a need for us to be in the Word of God. Let's look at the point when hope fades to speak the truth to ourselves, to repeat truth to ourselves regularly so that the negativity starts to dissipate. I don't know if you've noticed that, but in our world there is so much negativity. In conversations there's so much negativity. The world is craving hope. And I saw this in the rugby yesterday. How many commentators and how many people how many team players, captains, coaches, and other spoke about hope yesterday? Like a win in the rugby is going to bring humanity some kind of hope. It's ridiculous, really. In light of what I'm learning here, it's pathetic, really. But this is the, rea- this is the reality we live in. This is the culture we live in. We, we're living in constant negativity. And it's unrealistic because we're always predicting things for the future that are worse than what actually happens. Have you noticed that about yourself? Oh, we panic and we fret and we sweat about something that's going to happen tomorrow. Never comes to being. We live in the future when we don't have any control over the future and we, we panic in, like, a, like a saw with this unrealistic negativity. The solution, solution is, according to these texts, to speak truth to yourself. To root out the negativity and replace it with truth from God's word. And I'll explain the truth in a moment. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. The solution for the other individual who is living with short-sightedness would be this, a need to embrace the reality of the Bible. Not not to live day to day to day to day without the realities of Scripture. And church, it's our responsibility to bring that reality to bear upon people we know in the community. To readjust the thinking of our world, which is godless, like these chapters are godless, and reintroduce a biblical realism to our life, that there is a God who exists. The world is not all there is. That our condition as sinful man is, is worthy of penalty, is offensive to a holy God. That there is life and a, an awareness, life and awareness after death for every human being. Hear me. 
There is life and awareness after death for every human being. Our hope, our only hope, is the offer of God for salvation if we want to spend that awareness time, that lifetime in eternity with Him. Our only hope is to receive the offer that God has given of salvation. For those that are negative, to embrace some of these thoughts, that God has not abandoned you. It's like an Abigail thought, you know? God hasn't abandoned you. Remember that. If life falls apart, we have a God who has saved us and loves us and has prepared a place for us, for us to spend eternity with Him. I wrote these words in my, in my journal thoughts this week. This, will be, this eternity will be an everlasting feast of what we can only taste right now. I was just aware of, of that image, of the feast that we will enjoy. I mean, some of us are thrilled by God. I mean, there's nothing more joyous and nothing more thrilling than, than knowing the Lord, nothing more satisfying than walking with Jesus and enjoying and exploring His Word and having close communion with Him. This we a celebration of that communion today. But even beyond that, that's only a taste. Eternity will be a feast of these things that we only taste in this world. The summary of what I'm saying in terms of all hopelessness, whether you be blind this morning or short-sighted this morning, the solution is the same, to speak the truth to yourself. So I want to take time now to express that truth to you. We're going we're to have a time around the Lord's Supper, and as we do, I'd like you to be meditating on these things, the truth of God's Word, His gospel message. Why don't you close your eyes if you want to? Why don't you close your Bible and your, and your notebook and just allow these thoughts. These are not things you've heard for the first time, most probably. Allow them to wash over your heart as you come to the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving and in prayer, meditation. Today, the truth worth hearing is here for us to see in the, in the symbols that are here before us, the cup and the bread. We can actually see the truth. I'll read them for you. There is no one declared righteous. Another word for righteous would be the word perfect, before God. Some people think they can be declared righteous before God by their own works and their own deeds and just keeping the rules of God. But the Bible is clear, there's no one that is declared righteous before God based on keeping the rules. There is a righteousness that is available from God. He is the one that has provided it. He is the one that has given it. He has brought it. He has invited us to it. He has offered it to us. And it is apart from the requirement of God, apart from the law, apart from the standard of God, apart from the rules. And, and some of you this morning need to get this, maybe for the first time. There is a perfection that is offered to humanity apart from keeping the rules. I know Christians that have been Christians forever, it seems. They still talk in language like this. Sorry, Pastor, I missed church last week, you know. Um, please forgive me. Like the church attendance is going to earn some kind of points with God. 
No, this righteousness is received by faith in Jesus Christ. It is a righteousness that is available, a perfection that is available for everybody on the same basis. We are all sinners that fall short of the glory of God, uh, the Bible says. There is no distinction between differing sins. Like somebody's worse than another. We're all in the same boat. This righteousness is available to us on the same basis. All who trust in Jesus will be made right. All who trust in Jesus, to put it in common language, will be made perfect. You look at the balances on your balance sheet, at the bottom there will be a total and it will say perfect in your account. The Bible explains it in that language, accounting language, for us to understand. We will be made right or justified freely by God's grace. So the question is how? It doesn't even make sense, Trent. It doesn't really, unless there was somebody who would pay the penalty for us, and his name is Jesus. And he would take the penalty that we deserve to pay, and he would pay it on our behalf, and he would impute perfection to our account, and he would take our sin and pop it in his own account, and he would pay for that in full on the cross. God is the one that presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for us. That's why this whole thing's all bloody, you know? People look at this that are from outside the church and they wonder, what is this little ritual thing you're doing here with the blood and the body? And I mean, do we have to really go to that level? Yes. Yes, we do. We definitely do because God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for us. The blood of Jesus is the connection with our salvation. The blood of Jesus. So when you take this little cup in your hand today and you're made aware of the of the graphic picture of blood there, which is very graphic, let's be honest. Let's be thinking about this, that blood purifies us from sin, 1 John 1, 7. Blood is the one that gives us confidence to enter the presence of God, to pray to Him, and one day to be with Him. Blood turns the righteous anger, the right, correct, just anger of God. It turns that anger of God towards sinners away from us. Blood does that. When we fail, let me make this clear, when we fail again, and we fail again with the same sin, you've been in that place before? When that happens again, same sin, over and over again, where do we resort? Doing better with your Christianity and being a better person? No. We resort to the blood. We resort to the blood of Christ. Not sorrow for sin. If I cry a little bit more, God will forgive me. Not turning from sin only. Not passing certain time frames where we don't commit that sin, like a probation. You know, if I just pass the probation, then God will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. No. We resort to the blood. Resort to the blood in those situations. It's the blood of Jesus shed once, 2,000 years ago, that we need every single moment of our lives on this earth. It cleanses us and restores us to peace with God. Maybe before Romans 1 would make it plain that we are enemies of God in our sin. With these thoughts in our mind, why don't we take the Lord's Supper today and do so with great thanksgiving. Resort to the blood. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the symbols of blood and body, knowing freshly how important they are in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would take the body and the blood of Christ today with sincerity. If there be somebody here today that that cannot, rather to refrain, rather to refrain, take it another Sunday. But for today, to in genuine meditation, to be thankful for the appropriation of salvation to us by the blood of Christ. No man could think of the solution. We wouldn't. Every time we've tried in history, we've always tried to work our own way out of our mess. Try to do something better so we can kind of score points or balance the good with the bad and we fall horribly short of your expectation, your demand. Because Lord, Father, you, des- you demand perfection and only Jesus could give that to us. Nobody's perfect here. So Lord, we take this communion today recognizing peace with God for sinners as a result of the blood, Jesus dying in our place. Thank you for your gift, your free gift of salvation given to us. Amen. As the music plays, you come and you um, help yourself. Go back to your seat, maybe pray quietly, pray with your spouse. This is a body time. Do business with the Lord. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and has spoken to you through this message today, um, you pray appropriately and in your own time take the body and the cup and we'll close with prayer in a moment. Yeah.